marketers and founders are either investing in one or the other, but they're not really thinking about those two things as marketing strategy. Do you understand? And have you codified the fact that you have a target market, right? This is post-product market fit, obviously. And do you understand enough about those people so you know where they're showing up on a daily basis? Hello and welcome to Confessions of a B2B Marketer. My name is Tom Honey, your host, and today we have a big episode. We have Margaret Kelsey, who's coming on to share what I see as a really refreshing, original set of thoughts about B2B marketing. We cover about four different things. One of them was a really original mind shift for me about management, actually, not really about marketing. Before that, we have to give a big shout out to Famed ISO, who is the producer of the show and also my business. We start and grow profitable podcast for B2B companies. But with that, let's jump into the discussion with Margaret now. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like you've been having some really unique insights in the marketing space from my research. Would you agree like some of the things that you come up with on the podcast and on LinkedIn are like different takes? It's like original thought, which I actually don't find that much on LinkedIn specifically. Would you agree? Thank you very much. I don't know how original they are. I think that I've had the space over the last year to be able to see from a different vantage point what's been going on with multiple companies and in the B2B space, but kind of across multiple verticals and industries. And so I feel privileged to be able to have that space and be able to synthesize those thoughts. I'm sure there's other people out there that think the same way that I do, but also feel like because of that, it's kind of I have an onus to share what I'm seeing and to hopefully help other folks out. Let's just dig into that, right? This is the power of the advisor and the consultant is because you get to dive in sometimes for very short periods of time to businesses and learn a lot. So actually, it'd be great to give the audience some context because I know you had like deep in-house experience in B2B SaaS, I believe, and also at a VC. And now we're in the advising consulting world. So if you could just give a little bit of context, that would be awesome. Sure. Yeah, I was early at Envision and it's kind of meteoric rise. And then I went to a company called AppQs here in Boston, where we talked a lot about product-led growth because the platform enabled companies to really start to use their product as an engine for growth. And then that caught the eye of, of OpenView because they were the ones that coined the term. And candidly, we started to steal a lot of their organic search rankings and mind share of the term. And so I got connected with the folks at open view and then made the the hop over there in December of 2019. Spent a couple years there leading marketing and helped building out a team and also chatting with the prospect and portfolio companies. And from there, I felt like that's where really a lot of my passion lied was helping founders and heads of marketing think about marketing and marketing strategy. And so about a year ago, I took the leap and left OpenView and started advising full-time. And it's been a really, really fun journey to be able to, like you said, explore multiple different companies, but at a level and depth to be able to kind of start to create analysis of what the heck is going on right now. When you were at OpenView, how much of your time was marketing OpenView versus almost, I guess, being not rented out, but going out and being like marketing advisor to the portfolio? Yeah, the majority of the work was marketing OpenView. And that was really unique because it was the first time in my life that I had to switch out of B2B sales funnel, B2B marketing funnel into more of a relationship-driven sale, right? When you're thinking about 
taking money from an institutional investor and giving them a board seat. It's more like a marriage than it is like a transactional purchase. And so I think it was the first time that I was able to expand my brain into marketing strategy in the the altitude that I needed, which was a lot of the times we talk about tactics and these tactics work and you should try these tactics. And that might work if you have a similar customer base and a similar buying journey and a similar product and a similar all of those things. But as soon as you start to change any one of those variables, your marketing tactics can look radically different. And so it helped expand my brain into marketing strategy. And then I think helped me advise better when I was talking back into B2B SaaS, because it all depends, right? That might work for you. It might not work for you. And let's try to figure it out together. Which leads very nicely into the main part of the interview where I want to share or repeat back to you some of these unique takes I've been seeing. And I actually have a quote for this one. Oh, gosh. The secret to success is not, is directly from a LinkedIn post, and we'll link to it below if anybody wants to engage. The secret to success is not in the playbook that the other company used. It's the fact they created a differentiated playbook in the first place. Yeah. Which is essentially what you were just saying, I think. Yes. And so I think what I've seen a couple things here is that, and I actually fell victim to this at OpenView, we created a lot of content to try to share the playbooks that other founders had used to grow their companies, right? And I feel like we should have put a big fat disclaimer on top of all of them, which is use this as inspiration, right? Use this to understand the depths of the different things that they played with and the different variables that they were exploring to build something custom to work for them rather than this is the thing that's going to work for you. And what I'm seeing is in the last decade or so, a lot of B2B SaaS marketing started to become templatized, almost like a playbook. Here, you run some webinars here. Here's some demand gen over here. Even recently, here's how you invest in paid ads. And I really think that as technology itself becomes less defensible, as it's easier to spin up competing lookalike products, the way that those types of markets compete is through differentiation, usually with brand and distribution. And so your go-to-market strategy is kind of the last place that you can truly differentiate. But it's the place that right now becomes the most templatized and most founders just want somebody to come in and run the playbook that worked at a previous successful company. The most obvious one, which I think people are now really starting to realize doesn't work anymore, is the old like Salesforce. It was the book, Predictable Revenue, right? Which And I remember reading this in like 2017, which was just about too late, I think. Now it's very (laughs) clearly too late. And I was like implementing stuff and it just wasn't working. But if somebody tries to do that now, it probably isn't going to work. So I guess this all makes total sense to me. But to try and make this practical for B2B marketer listening, are we just saying that you need to obviously consume that information, understand it, but then go out and walk your own path, like learn? Is there anything like practical we can give to the audience about this? For sure. So I always zoom it way, way up that marketing is essentially responsible for two things. The first is to saturate channels that your target audience already live in consistently with a message that resonates. And so people can call this brand, but sometimes brand starts to bring up connotations of arts and crafts or just design or people have weird thoughts about brand. But the first thing is like, are you finding the channels that your target audience already live in? And can you frequently and consistently show up in a way that resonates with them, that breaks through the noise? In that first part, the thing that is most interesting to me is that it used to be that marketers had only a few channels that we could actually market into, right? We had direct mail, we had TV, we had radio, right? Like there were specific spots that you could advertise or market. 
And right now, the act of it is the same, which is where are these people showing up on a daily basis? Where are they consuming information? But it, it doesn't fit in the nice, tidy little bullet points that it used to. Now it's micro communities. Now it's Slack groups. Now it's Reddit forums. And you could go on and on and on. And, but the, the functional practice is the same, which is where is your target audience living? And can you show up consistently with a message that resonates? And the second piece is, can you identify signals of readiness? And then can you convert those people to do the thing that you want them to do? Can you get them to try the product if it's a PLG motion? Can you get them to talk to sales? That conversion motion is a second part of marketing. And what I'm seeing right now is marketers and founders are either investing in one or the other, but they're not really thinking about those two things as marketing strategy. And so I think it's a really wonderful time for marketers to explore, but there is some consistency to it, which is first, do you understand and have you codified the fact that you have a target market, right? This is post-product market fit, obviously. And do you understand enough about those people so you know where they're showing up on a daily basis? And that piece, I think, is a lot of exploration, a lot of digging, a lot of customer research, a lot of experimentation. But there is some predictability into finding out what those things are. And it's not like you have to just... It's not a complete messy middle. It's just that you have to kind of go and talk to people and understand how they're consuming information. I made up a metric that I think aligns with the first point you shared there. It's called total targeted impressions. And I think it's a really good metric for B2B marketers to track. It's basically the number of impressions that the message that you were mentioning is showed to the right people, e.g. the targeted people. It's very hard to track because you can't get impressions in like a Slack community, etc. But if you can ensure that's going up every month, let's say, and we know the message is good, then you only just need your second step, which is spotting when someone's ready and then directing them. But do you think that's a, that metric aligns with your theory? Absolutely, which is, yeah, exactly. Like out of our target market, our, our, out of our TAM, how many of those people are seeing from us on a consistent basis? I think that's a wonderful thing if it's doable to set up, right? And I think that's the other struggle, especially with startups, is this quest for data perfection and maybe awaiting till we have perfect data in order to actually do some activities that we know are directionally correct. And so as long as that doesn't slow people down in terms of instituting it, I think that's a wonderful thing and is spot on with what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, there's literally no way to calculate that. But I think there's a software product at some point in a five years, maybe that I'll create to help people do that. Anyway, let's move on. Can you explain what you like your definition of the difference between a marketing channel and a marketing program? Yeah. Oh, the channelification of marketing. This is my biggest sore spot right now. I think what happened over the last couple of years, especially as companies have tried to get leaner with their marketing spend, is the easiest way for marketers and non-marketers to think about and look at marketing is by channel, right? Like, oh, this is paid. Well, you can even break paid down, right? This is paid search. This is paid social. This is organic LinkedIn. This is whatever it is. And I think the channelification by looking at channels in a spreadsheet and understanding the ROI per channel, you're missing what marketing is, which is the buzzword of omni-channel. But the idea is that you're showing up in all of these places. And the ROI might be the fact that your target audience now has enough affinity and awareness of your brand that they trust it. And that's not going to show up in a spreadsheet, right? And so when I think about a program, it might be that brand program, right? Which is, and you could even break it down a little bit more granularly, but it could be that you're really thinking about, or like it could be a program of like, 
customer advocacy, right? And that entire program might have lots of channels within it that you use, but you're going to look at the ROI of that program of customer advocacy, right? Is this actually bringing in new customers because they're hearing stories from existing customers? And can we measure the ROI of everything we're spending in that program versus the ROI we're getting from that program rather than the individual one channel that you might actually be sending information through? So as a good example, like a podcast that could be seen as a channel, but actually it's a program that incorporates organic social, maybe paid social. And so you want to try to understand your spend and then potential ROI from the whole, from all those different channels. Is that right? Yeah. And I wouldn't even call podcasts the channel, right? I would be calling it like whatever the show is called, because you might then break the clips into things where you're then seeding it organically on social. And you might be doing all of these other, we talk a lot about content repurposing or trying to create content per channel. So I would think of it not even just like that we would call it podcast, because I think internally people would still think of the word podcast as a channel. And if you called it like the show name, it might be able to kind of broaden people's ideas, which is that we use this show in all of these different ways, right? Maybe you're even using it as kind of a Trojan horse to get in front of big fish of your target accounts, right? And what is the ROI of that? It might not be that your audience base is actually growing, but your podcast is seen as exclusive enough that when you invite the VP of such and such company to be on it, that they're more likely then to take a follow-up sales call from you. What's the ROI of that, right? But if you're only looking at what are the people that are coming through as inbound leads that have listened to the podcast on Spotify, we've really now cheapened the practice of marketing. That's such a great quote. We're going to have to clip that out. We've cheapened the practice. Okay, next, I know this is something you've been exploring recently, is how the internal culture of the business can impact the external brand of a company. Yeah, I'm obsessed with this idea. So when I go back to when it was working at Envision, when we really were understanding and growing our community. And I use community as like the biggest term of anyone that felt affinity towards Envision that were design adjacent at all. When that was working, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years trying to figure out what was it and why was that so special? And why did we really, were we able to kind of get all of these designers to care about a business software, right? And what I really, it came down to is this flywheel of internal culture, external brand content and community, and these things build on each other. But specifically, internally, our marketing team cared about design and designers, right? What the folks that that were on the team when I was there really understood what was happening on design Twitter at the time. We were understood the nuance of the jokes. We cared a lot about the same level of craft and the the individual like physical products that designers cared about. Like we as marketers really embodied and embraced the same thing that designers cared about. And so the culture of the organization was design driven, design led. And then it was easy to show up externally as a brand, as somebody that was design-driven or a company that was design-driven and design-led because there was never any disconnect of, oh, here, now we have to put on this layer of brand. If you did something good for a designer, if you made their day easier, if you were able to create some sense of belongingness and community with it, it came from the fact that our marketing team also felt that way. And so what we're essentially saying is the internal, specifically marketing team, have empathy and really understand and want to help the ideal customer, then that's going to have a more positive 
interactions through the content, et cetera, that's going to then reinforce the culture, then it all gets better. I guess my question to you is, let's say there's a B2B marketing manager listening now, they have a team who may not be in love or really understand their ideal customer. How would you advise them to try and get this flywheel started? Yeah, well, depends on how far and how many people or how whatever, but I think at a certain level of curiosity, that's really important, right? Like what does your target audience care about? What do they talk about? And part of it is it as maybe not a manager level, but as soon as you start hiring teammates, as soon as you start hiring people into the organization, having some consistent shared values that you use as a hiring rubric is really important. And those shared values should be the shared values of your target audience as well, right? And I think that that is a really important kind of North Star for both internal culture and external brand is this idea of shared values. If designers really care about user experience, for the case of Envision, then you want to hire marketers who are always thinking about the user experience of their marketing programs. Do they care about how content is being consumed? Do they care about maybe bullet points are better for this block of text than a huge big paragraph because then the user experience and the readability will be better? Can we shorten the amount of clicks that somebody has to do to get to this thing? Can we make it easier for them? Like the shared value of user experience was both a brand value, not necessarily ever named at Envision, but it was definitely one of these unnamed things that us marketers all really cared about. And also we knew that our target audience cared about. So the more that you can codify and understand what those shared values of your audience are, and the more that then you can bring those internally and start to talk about them and then also start to hire using those as a rubric, the more it's easier for this internal culture, external brand to flow one-to-one. Makes total sense. The next one I want to move on to, I think is massive. And again, I've got another quote from the website. You had a 93% retention rate on the teams you manage over the course of your career. Now, I quickly want to give context as well. I think this is super important. As you obviously progress in any role, more of your time is spent managing than actually doing the thing. So you progress in marketing, you spend more time marketing, managing marketers than actually marketing. And you don't really get training and management, right? And so this is why I think it's super important. And with this 93% retention stat, I think we need to understand how you think you were able to manage a marketer's effectively to achieve that. Yeah. I think marketers forget a lot of times that they have the raw materials to be good managers. Marketers are always thinking about what is this target audience? How do they like to be communicated with? What's the thing that motivates them? What's the thing that drives their behavior? That's a good manager too, right? What is this person in front of me? How do they like to be communicated with? How can I understand their motivations? How do I make sure that I'm setting them up for a successful experience? And the same way can then be flipped even internally upwardly to stakeholders, right? Like what is, how does the stakeholder want to communicate? How can I best use the channel in which they're going to actually be in to give them that nugget of information that I need them to understand? And so to me, that is the core foundation of it, which is a curiosity about human beings. Like how can I understand their motivations? How can I feed them something that is going to make them feel empowered? and creative and like they have autonomy over the work that they do and that they're having impact. That's both what you want your target audience to feel like and that's also what you want your team to feel like. So Margaret, what I'm hearing is that there's no excuse for a marketer to be a bad manager. No, I mean, there's overwhelm. There's lots of excuses, right? There's being under-resourced, being completely overwhelmed, just not being able to see that. But I think that a good marketer who is insatiably curious about the human experience can be an exceptional, exceptional manager. That is a mindset that I've 
or like a point of view that I've never thought of. So you just helped me there. I want to be cheeky now and dig into in the past like three months with the companies you've been involved with advising. What's like a marketing channel or a program that you're like, wow, that is working really well. You don't have to give the company name, but it would be great to understand something that you've seen that got you excited. Yeah, I worked with a company that was really did some really interesting and thoughtful analysis that word of mouth was actually their biggest uh, referring channel. And so then they explored what's the thing that makes word of mouth so special. And it's usually that there's somebody that somebody trusts that's listening to them and about their pain point and giving them pointed, targeted help on how to solve their problem. And so they started to think about what are the other ways and the other channels that we can start to use that same formula of trusted advisor, listening to a pain point and then offering up kind of a bespoke solution, which is theirs through all of these different channels. But specifically, they also saw that in these little clusters of their target audience, they were much more likely to win additional deals if there was already one of these clusters that had somebody that had bought the software solution. And so then what they're doing in this next phase in this next year is they're doing it's kind of like ABM, but it's really like land and expand of identify all these clusters that already have purchasers and running lots of different marketing programs at these little clusters, right? Can we make sure we're saturating them on social channels? Can we make sure, and they tend to be a little bit geographic focused. They have a podcast that what they're going to do is they're going to go and have the person that has already purchased the software on the podcast and then specifically distribute it throughout that little geographic cluster. So they feel like, oh, that's familiarity. I know that person or they're adjacent in my network. And this must be a trusted solution because they're also doing it, right? So this idea of breaking down, oh, we see that this is working. What are our hypotheses around why that's working? And can we figure out new ways and new programs and new expansion opportunities and marketing programs that use that same kind of core truth, but expanded into the wild. And so we'll see what happens with them in 2024. But it's the smartest strategy that I've seen put on paper over the last couple of months. It's really nice. And it actually ties in two of your concepts here. The first is the channel. Well, I assume they're going to be tracking that as a program and not through podcast, the channel. And then obviously, because you're advising them. And then also, it seems like they've done original thinking, right? They've actually looked to understand what's working, and then they're going to implement a strategy based on that. Awesome. Final thing I want to talk about is the podcast that you run. How's that been? Because I think it's relatively new, or at least I haven't heard of it since I started researching you. But how's that going? Is it like, it seems like you guys have fun because it's just you and a co-host, right? Yes, me and Devin, my co-host. We have a lot of fun. Yeah. That's the whole purpose of it. (laughs) Cool. So it's literally like, obviously it can help, I think, both of you raise your personal brands, etc. But was that like primary goal fun, secondary goal, personal branding? Exactly. I call it my sandbox. Like when Devin and I left full-time roles in a similar time at the end of last year, and we had this idea for a podcast and ended up launching it in February and have had three seasons now of about, I think, eight to 10 episodes each. And we take a little break in between each season, but it has been fun, right? So I think that's what I really love about Devin is her and I would have lots of conversations before we had a podcast 
And I always left feeling like she has, we think probably 80% the same, but the 20% that we disagree on is really fun to kind of debate because neither of us hold ourselves in too high of ego. And we really just wanted to be able to share that, right? And hopefully it's useful for people when they listen to the two of us kind of spar on these ideas. What we found that our podcast ended up turning into is, is really just the fact that a lot of folks in marketing right now are using terms as almost that they're static and we all agree on them, but nobody actually has ever sat down and agreed upon any definitions of these terms or these words or these ideas. And so a lot of our podcast episodes end up being her and I exploring what possibly people mean by certain things. And we don't try to tie it up. It's not one of those podcasts that's going to be like, here's five takeaways to do XYZ better. It's really kind of us exploring the messy middle of what marketing is. And hopefully it's helpful for people to help at least understand that there's not a lot of consistency in the terms that we use, but we never really end up wrapping things up too much. It can be such a, not even in marketing, but even in life, it can be such a source of confusion if people are discussing something and they each have different definitions of the term. It's like, first we have to define the term, then we can have a healthy discussion about it. Exactly. That's the red thread through my entire career has been this idea of creating shared languages. I think that that is where the majority of human understanding and empathy comes from is when we can get to the point where we're finally speaking the same language and using the same words to mean the same things that we've agreed upon. I love doing that as a marketer with a target audience, right? Using the same terms that they use and creating that sense of belonging. I've loved doing that as a manager to build a team that has belonging and motivation and understanding. And now I love doing it as an advisor where I can actually go in and call out the fact that folks are actually using the same terms when meaning completely different things. And that's where the source of chaos maybe within the organization is actually coming from. So that's definitely been the red thread through my career. And then even I'm an artist as well. And so my art aims to create a shared language as well. Some more original thought. Very refreshing is how I describe this discussion and what I learn about you guys and from listening to podcasts, etc. So obviously, we didn't give the podcast name. Don't say content. It's going to be linked below. And we say content all the time on the podcast. So we don't take ourselves too seriously on that either. The website is margaretkelsey.com. So that's if anybody wants advice, marketing advice. And then margaretkelsey.art. All this will be linked below, guys, for when you're listening. But yeah, Margaret, as I said, super refreshing. Loved like diving in. And now I'm a subscriber to the show. I'll be listening in. Great insights and stuff I hadn't heard before. I think for me, the one that has clicked the most is that actually the marketer should be a good manager because the skill set, well, there's a lot of overlap, right? Like understanding and then helping, guiding on a journey. So I think that's the one thing that got me. So thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. All right, team, how did you find that? Massive shout out to Margaret. Go and check out Don't Say Content, the podcast below. I'm now a subscriber and listen religiously. Also, big shout out to Fame for producing this show. Thank you so much, Olha, who's the editor. Thank you so much, Chad, who's the person who's basically doing all the organizing. Also, of course, thank you so much for listening.